Do so. we need another bottle of wine? Why you ask the silliest questions? I know, sometimes. I know, I know. I know. Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Melissa Kirscher and Wendy Bowlesby. My turn to introduce since Melissa's trying not to spit wine on her computer. Because mm-hmm. that's never Again. happened. To, that's never happened in this podcast. There's a cover on it now. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. I'm one of your hosts, Wendy Bowlesby, and that's Melissa Kersher. And we are joined once again. For you, it's probably been a while, but it's really just been minutes by our special guest star, Mr. Christopher Jones. Or as was previously established, DC comic book artist Christopher Danger Jones. Esquire. Esquire. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have a studio audience with us tonight. We have Wendy's husband, Christopher slash Monty Bowlesby. He's waving at you. Hi, everybody. So if you hear random interjections from the background, that would be Interjection. He's, he's our love boat cast. Tonight, our wine pairing, and again, as you know, we record more than one of these in a night. So that means our wine pairing for this episode is the second bottle of wine we've uh-huh. <laughs> we're drinking. And Chris isn't helping us at all with this. Either Chris. Neither one of them. <laughs> oh, oh, oh that's, that's true. That's true. Uh, Monty will probably Monty, help Monty, Monty is helping us. Monty is helping this us. This is right. a... Now, it's Italian because it's a Toscana. So it's, would it be Santine or is it Centine? I feel like it might be Centine, right? Because isn't the C in Italian a ch? Anyway, it's... Well, I thought the double C was a ch. I don't know. And neither, none of us in here speak Italian. I only did Italian art songs and my voice teacher told me how to pronounce everything. But I know it would be Tine. I do know it would be Tine. Tine. So it's either Santine or Centine. Oh, ooh, sh- sh- oh, watch out. Sh- okay. Okay. Shh. This is important. <laughs> this is so important to, to our creative to screw, process. ladies and gentlemen. Move that. <laughs> yeah, you are. Don't put that near him. A crowd is gathered. They're watching expectantly. And? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, wait. Now the satisfying glug. Shh, shh, shh. That just sounds like somebody going to the bathroom now. <laughs> I gotta pee. <laughs> you never have to pee. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm so dehydrated. <laughs> no, she just never has to pee. She's got a bladder of steel. I do. Yes. This is n- not quite... Oh, no, it's like freaking opaque. It's... Or maybe I just don't have enough light. It might not be Ooh. enough... No. It, it appears to be the, uh, the blood of your enemies. Yeah, it oh, really is. Yes. It is very bloody. Very, very. Mm. And I approve Ooh. of this. Ooh, it's got... Even just smelling it, there's spices in there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's got heft. It's... 
Ooh, it's got like Chris Hemsworth shoulders in there. It's got some, <laughs> it's got some oak. Yeah. So anyway, tonight we were going to talk about family-friendly films. Yeah. And All the right. confusion that America has on this topic. Yes. Yes. Family-friendly entertainment. Well, this is a favorite rant of mine in the the sphere of the comics industry, which, strangely enough, I find myself talking about from time to time. Um, <laughs> it, it, it always frustrates me, and it seems like America is worse about this than some other countries, not being able to make the distinction effectively between content that is aimed specifically and exclusively at kids versus stuff that is intended for an all-ages audience. For the whole family yeah. to go together. And, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the, the book I'm working on right now um, is par- called Parallel Man. It's a sci-fi action-adventure. And we keep talking about it in terms of Star Wars. We want it to be fast-paced and fun and for everybody. You know, and it's very important to us that it be all ages friendly, but from a marketing point of view, we're trying, like like the Dickens, to not brand it as an all ages book, because as a comic, that tends to, at retail outlets, get you shelved with Uncle Scrooge and Archie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of um, adult fans will never even check it out, because they just assume it's not for them. Uh, when I was doing the Young Justice comic, I had this experience all the time of fans, really rabid fans of the Young Justice animated television show, who were the kind of comics fans that went to their comic shop every Wednesday for the new books coming out, and it was news to them that there was a tie-in comic for Young Justice, because they'd never seen it. They because would, it was in the kids' section. Yeah, it wasn't with the other superhero titles. So even though no one working on the book intended it to be a kids' book, because DC Comics insisted on branding it as uh, an all-ages title because it was based on an animated television show, even though the show wasn't particularly a kids' show, mm-hmm. uh, it meant that, you know, well, we wait, never why reached... Would it, why would it be branded... I, I mean... Was the Batman Strikes a kids comic? Yep. Yep. It totally was. Johnny DC was the label they had at the time for all of their kids books. But why? Why? Why not just, hey, look, it's a comic. It's a superhero comic. And that means, by definition, it's for everybody. Well, the... well that's the thing. It's it's not, that's not necessarily the case these days. Well, used... why don't you just say superhero comics are for everybody, and if you have written a superhero comic that is pushing the envelope, then you mark that as you as a rate, well, the equivalent of a rate. That of. used to be the case. There was a time when DC first started experimenting with slightly more adult content, like when they were first launching the Vertigo line. Yeah where they would brand certain books as for mature readers. Mm -hmm. But it's gotten to the point where the vast majority of their books aren't necessarily like 18 and older books. There's a comics rating system that I think the cutoff for for a lot of their line is like it's appropriate for age 16 and older. But so much of their stuff is that way, including all the, the superhero characters that had existed for decades primarily as juvenile escapist adventure fiction, Mm -hmm. Um, they're now all in that 16 and older category, which means if you're a 14-year-old who really likes Batman, 
they don't have anything for you, which to <sighs> me is is madness. But you know, I, this is Sparta. Yeah, but you know, it, you know, it's not just Batman. It's not just DC. You know, the the entire industry suffers from this kind of confusion. And the and the the thing is, from a marketing point of view, there is a value when so many of the comics out there have mature content, whether it's adult language, violence, sexual content, whatever it is. In having a book that, you know, even if a parent comes into the comic store with their kids, if they haven't read it, just having a clear label on the cover saying that this is a kid-friendly comic, that makes all the sense in the world. The, mm-hmm. the problem is, as I was saying, they don't, most retailers, not all, but most, don't display it with the other books. They display it in a little kid section off to the side. And then most readers have gotten the the impression that, like, well, that's all just kitty stuff. Which is weird, because I yeah. can't help but immediately think about the explosion of YA literature yeah. that's been happening. Yeah. With Catching Fire and Twilight and so many of the properties that are getting made into movies, and you don't even realize, by the way, the movie that you've just been watching was based on a YA novel and it was made because it was so incredibly popular with the YA audience, but not just the YA audience. Everybody's reading Catching Fire. Everybody's yeah. reading The Hunger Games. Yeah. Right? But it really takes something Although, to be a, a breakout hit and be a known quantity mm-hmm. like Hunger Games well, for, I think, a lot of adult readers to find that stuff. You don't immediately go to the young adult section and start actually, trolling for books there. But my there. point was, nowadays you do. Well, knowledgeable genre readers these days know that actually where the most groundbreaking fiction is being written is often over in the young adult section. Mm-hmm. And so you're starting to see some, re- again, some retailers mm. who are smart enough to move that stuff just over into the flat out genre section. Yeah. Right. So you can wander in and go, oh, I want I want Hunger Games and not be like, where the hell is it? it well, it's in sci-fi. And it's also in young sure. adult. Because well, why wouldn't you put yeah. it in both places? And that's my point. Why wouldn't they put it in both places? Some well, I, retailers do, but a yeah. lot don't. Yeah, because I, I think in general, the comics industry continue is still chasing after this continually dwindling audience of aging comic book fans. And kids are an afterthought now. Kids were their market for generations. I know. I mean, it's an idiotic stance. Well, it, it amazes me as they try to... I mean, I, I have no objection to doing more adult material in the medium of comics. I don't have an objection to doing more adult st- stories with some of these superhero characters. But what, bother, what bothers me is, is exclusively doing more adult material with those characters... When you know, it seems like you have a, a generation of comics creators running away from doing the kind of material that got them hooked on comics in the first place as kids. Ding. Well, well, everybody wants to write real, like be real and like aim for the Pulitzer, right? They want to well, write the next Watchmen. This is they the, want to write the next Kingdom Come. They want to write the next well Dark Knight w- Returns. Watchmen and the Dark Knight Returns are two works that were phenomenal and the industry learned all the wrong lessons from them 
because yeah. they, didn't, they didn't learn, you know, you, you find a creator who's really a master of their craft and turn them loose and let them create something whole and original that's self-contained and has its own universe and has a beginning and an end. What they learn from it is like, oh, hey, you know, you, you make this stuff violent and sexual and put swear words in it and it really sells. Would you say that Watchmen was kind of the genesis of all that? Because that, that was, what, 1986? The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen both were coming out roughly at the same time. Oh, that's both right. about 1986. Because so it, it was this one-two punch where the most successful perceived as cutting-edge things in comics were both these really dark adult takes okay. on the superhero genre. And, you know, Alan Moore has been very vocal about the fact that he hates the impact Watchmen had on the rest of comics. Interesting. You, know, you look at you look at uh, I mean because he he does he did things like um, you know uh, Miracle Man or under its original British title Marvel Man and other other really adult dark things with superheroes before. But you look at a lot of what you know at times he visited the superhero genre after Watchmen and it was a lot of stuff like Tom Strong and stuff yeah. that was much lighter in vain because I think he kind of like. He'd gotten that out of his system and now is trying to sort of act as a counterpoint to everybody else chasing after Watchmen. Mm -hmm. Because so soon after Watchmen and Dark Knight came out, that's when you started getting the direct market. That's when you started getting image comics. That's when the entire industry shifted towards this adult market. Whereas, you know, early Mm -hmm. 80s, you were still getting stuff like, you know, the the Giffen Justice League, which was delightful. But you look at a character like the Punisher, who when he introduced was True. a novelty. He was an anti-hero. Yeah. Because he was a superhero that actually gasped, used real guns, and killed bad guys. Mm-hmm. And now that's not even, you know, rare, let alone unique. Yeah. Um, you know, and not that the Punisher isn't still popular, but, you know, he's competing with, you know, Deadpool and a zillion other characters that are violent and lethal and, mm-hmm. and you know, all of that. Um, you know, and and again, you know, I don't have anything inherently against any of that. It's it's when it's hard to find anything else. Yeah, that drives me nuts. Um, well, I, I remember when um, when you were working on Batman Strikes, which was under the Johnny DC title, so it was aimed at the children's market. Right. But that continual push, push and pull you had with the writers of. You were trying very much to make it a family friendly book, where it was kind of more all ages, whereas at least a couple of the original writers were pushing it towards kids material. Yeah, Um, yeah, I mean, my my approach was I was trying to do the Batman comics I read growing up. Yeah, yeah. Well, And that was just a constant. I have a daughter, and she watches all kinds of movies, and yeah, obviously she loves, like, all the Pixars and Disney's and all the animated stuff, but she also loves Superman the movie with Christopher Reeve. Of course we showed that to her. Yeah. There is nothing remotely objectionable in that film for a three-year-old, which is how old she was when we showed it to her. And she she still loves it, and she can sing the theme song, which makes me very proud. Um, <laughs> but, my, but my point is that we don't get those films marketed the same way towards yeah. the whole family. We went to Disney recently, and what happened when we came back is we're at Disney, and there's all these references and attractions to the bygone family classics of Disney, the live action classics that Disney doesn't make anymore. It is all animation. Mm -hmm. 
So we came home and we're like, you know, and I'm like, you know what? I love the Swiss Family Treehouse and I've never actually seen the movie. <laughs> so we rented it. And Disney isn't making that family fair that everyone in the family can enjoy. They're making animated films that adults can also enjoy, but it's sort of everybody knows that they're really just for kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, even but- that bothers me because, of course, the... In Japan, the animation is just another... It's just another form of storytelling, and every genre of film that you can conceive is done in animation yeah. as well. Although <laughs> although I think part of what Disney is doing is they, they stopped making their own live-action stuff and instead kind of shifted that focus off onto properties that they bought. You know, because they purchased the Muppets. They purchased Marvel. They purchased... Star Wars. Star Lucasfilm. Wars. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's very much but what they're... Stri- the thing Marvel. is, I think, I think they're actually trying to get back to that, though. Because you think mm-hmm. about, you know, um, how much the, the Disney brand is family entertainment. And, yes, they had wandered away from it. But I know one of the reasons that they bought Marvel, it wasn't that they were interested in getting into the comic book publishing business. It was that they wanted those characters and those properties because they were interested in making a push into kid-friendly action-adventure. And they knew they, they knew they had the whole princess thing wrapped up. Oh, fuck <laughs> they, you. Know, they were, I'm what, here to tell you they do. Yeah, but they were, they were trying to get... And granted, this is getting into the, the gender stereotypes, which is a whole separate podcast. But they're trying to get uh, tr- archetypically boy-friendly action-adventure entertainment. And that's why they went after Marvel. And now the success of that probably spurred them on to acquiring the Lucasfilm <coughs> properties. And actually, now that you've said that, it just occurred to me, there is absolutely no reason why Teddy can't watch Thor. <laughs> it's a film for mom well, and daughter. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things I think the, the Marvel Studio films have gotten really right is that even you know, I would argue that the most serious and dark film that they've done to date is probably Captain America: Winter Soldier, and even that is fun. It has a lightness to it. It's not R-rated. Nope. Um, I would show that to Teddy with no qualms. Mm -hmm. She might be a little bit bored by it because it's just the aspects of the film aren't something that she's super excited by. Yeah. I mean, action sequences don't excite her. What she Mm -hmm. wants is characters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's a classic. She's a girl. She's a girly girl. She's a girly girl. And that that stuff is in there, but it's those elements of the film are a lot more dialogue heavy and and sure. I mean, and I'm, I, I'm wondering I if I want she... to make it clear with Superman, it's not like all she cares about is Lois Lane and Clark Kent and their romance. She's mm-hmm. not a girly girl like that. What she wants is Clark Kent with his family. Yeah. She wants yeah. Superman talking to his dad. Yeah. And all the parts, and she likes the part where he saves the world, but if it goes on too long, she gets a little like, well, of course he's going to save the world. He's Superman. Yeah. Though going back to Winter Soldier, I wondered, I'd wonder if she'd engage with Black Widow a little bit. She might. She might. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm like, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Mm -hmm. Because I've been trying to think it's time to broaden her horizons a little bit. And she she gets into stuff that's not just princesses, because thank God. But that said, I have been very careful about which princesses I steer her towards and which ones I support (laughs) in the household. We had a whole indoctrination session about how... Sleeping Beauty was boring, and I was very happy that that was successful. Uh, if you ask my daughter what Sleeping Beauty does, oh, she's boring. All she does is pick berries. 
and fall, <laughs> and fall asleep. Oh, um, very good. Yay, very good. me! But she loves the Avatar TV series. She loves The Legend of Korra. She loves Superman. So there's there's room there to really sure. explore. And I'm, I'm just trying to get to the point where she loves the adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Oh, uh, she would love that. I can't that. wait. Well, and the clothes. Yeah. And Claude Rains clothes especially. Oh, my goodness, he's fabulous. <laughs> oh, I love yes. Claude Rains so much. Oh, I would be his fat hag. <sighs> Back when you get family fair like that. Like the adventures of I Robin mean, Hood. Where I mean, there's no pandering to the kids. Mm-hmm. It is an adventure, and it is understood. Kids love adventure, and if they don't get all of the political ramifications of what's going on with the adult plot, that's okay. You make a film, you make a film for adults, and you trust that kids will find their own way to enjoy it. Right. I mean, it's it, something that Neil Gaiman talks about all the time when he gets so frustrated with the with the shitty kid stories that get written, and people are like, oh, your stories are so dark and horrifying. He's like. This is what kids' brains do. Yeah. When you try to tell a kid that the world is sunshine and roses, they know you're lying. Whenever I talk about this stuff, I always feel like I want to put out there. It's like, I'm not a prude about this. I, you know, I like stuff like Watchmen or comics that are even darker than that. I love The Walking Dead. I love zombie movies. I love, I love stuff that's violent and dark and bleak. You know, I mean, I can enjoy all that stuff if it's well done. You know, my frustration is that it seems like we have stuff that's increasingly adult and we have stuff that's aimed at five-year-olds and there's this growing mm-hmm. gulf in between. And, and so and, you have 10-year-olds yeah. going to see really hard R's that I'm actually a little like, I'm uncomfortable you're here watching this film with me. Although, yeah. to be fair, when I was 10 years old, I was watching that stuff. I mean, I, I think back to the stuff I was watching when I was Teddy's age or when I was 7, 8, 9, 10, and I was watching some And some kids are ready for that. Stuff. Some kids yeah. are ready for that yeah, sooner, but you want another option. Oh, that's true. And I mean, we, but, these but days, we, we also could... talked about Watcher in the Woods. Yeah. Watcher in the Woods, yeah. There is nothing like that happening right now. No, that's true. I mean, I, I was raised during this little sliver of time when Disney was making live action horror movies that were family friendly thrillers thrillers well, and, and, and uh, good god kids eat that shit up are you kidding me of course they do yeah i and, loved candle shoe i loved it <laughs> it was re- i oh i got, i've got to rent that again well and obviously there's exceptions to this i mean we've we've already discussed the yeah. whole phenomenon of you know young adult literature well and that's being made into films like the hunger games or like you know the, yeah, the, the, monster. the hunger games is being made into a film for adults hmm I agree, but then marketed towards adults. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter is an exception. Harry Potter is the big glaring exception to everything we're saying. And it's like the only middle ground. And and what's so brilliant is that that is teen lit being made into movies that are aimed for everybody. But it's it's always, you know, getting back to the whole idea of people like drawing the the wrong lessons from successes, people look at Harry Potter and are like, ooh, wizards. As opposed to, ooh, stuff that is rich in character development and story and has some darkness to it, but it's written in a way that you can give it to a 10-year-old and it's going to be all right. The, the books get a little darker as they go. Uh, yeah, you know, parents need to use some judgment, but... But then again, if you started reading those books 
it, it, it's not that you ate by the time you read those books you're older now and you can handle it it's that as you follow the character's journey even if like an eight-year-old sits down and they just plow through all the books in a month you start with something light by the time you get to goblet of fire mm-hmm. it makes sense and right. you understand what the stakes are and kids do talk about life and death mm-hmm. teddy talks about life and death and she's five and she's very interested in it she's very curious about it and the concepts of it and she talks about i understand that things die and things don't go on forever and this isn't something that gives her nightmares this is something that's very matter of fact especially she does science experiments for fuck's sake in preschool and yet we soft code everything that yeah. goes to our kids and we're doing them a disservice. Yeah, it, it, totally. Because, I mean, the, the reason we had Grimm's fairy tales hundreds of years ago is because Grimm's fairy tales, the original ones, the gruesome, terrible, horrible ones... Oh my God, the really are, gross ones. ...were meant to prepare kids for the horrors of everyday adult life. It, it was it was an inoculation. But to, I mean, to you... Shit goes down. That's Shit goes what the down. Yeah. Shit yeah. goes down, kids. But you better prepare yourself. To use the Marvel Studios films again as an example, I mean, one thing that I think they get really right is how to do relatively serious stories and dark moments and, and you know, loss and tragedy and all those things, but do them in a way that it isn't gratuitously violent it isn't gory it isn't you know it they, they present it in a way that it's it it's palatable to a wider range of audience without feeling like it's been bleached of any richness of 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 drama you know i said this i said this earlier you know the, this comic i'm working on parallel man our our intent is for it to be very all ages friendly but you know we're having to you know we, we aren't going to try to like label it on its cover that way at all mm-hmm. because we just haven't been able to figure out there's really any way to say that that's not going to get misinterpreted as it's a kid's book because it's fine when you're talking about it when you're having a conversation with somebody and you can say we're trying to do something like star wars where it's like it's for everybody it works for kids it works for adults and they get that but there's a difference between the paragraph long explanation of your intent mm-hmm. and a, a two or three word phrase because you know you can't say for kids you can't say all ages you can't say family friendly without people getting visions in their heads of the the negative side of the disney stereotype yeah, yeah. because we we no longer have something like rocky and Bull, well actually I, I think phineas and ferb actually does fall into this but but the rocky and bullwinkle model is what i always bring up in that it's it was a cartoon that was made for kids but if you were an adult watching that show it's like oh that's a metaphor for communism and they're referencing mao say tongue and you know but, they're, they're, but they're, they're even, so yeah phineas much. and ferb yeah. Teddy loves Phineas and Ferb, and so do but Chris he, and I. But even that is like that's like a kids show with a subversive streak of adult humor in yeah. it. Yeah, it's as still opposed to something that's kids. played True. straight, True. but it's done in an all ages friendly way. Yeah, we we don't. Which really are both have, valuable. They're just different things. We don't really it's have true. what we have is a whole lot of kid entertainment that adults will enjoy too. Yeah. Because I love Frozen. I absolutely love it. It's a kid film. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't have things like the Swiss Family Robinson anymore. We have things that can serve that function, but Superman was still marketed in such a way, yeah. in a very different way. It was yeah. a, it was expected. Of course we're going to take Wendy to go see Superman. 
this is a family film. Everybody's going to well, see it. I remember when Batman the Animated Series came out in 1992. And aside from the fact that it was brilliantly done, oh. one of the things that was Fantastic. really refreshing about it was that so many of the adventure shows that were on when I was a kid were that really annoying brand of comedy adventure where your main hero is kind of bumbling and there's really some sidekick character, often a funny animal or a kid, who's really being like the bad guy or solving the mysteries. Yeah, and I was like, well, that stuff is fine, but like when that's what everything is, it gets really tiresome. Well, and that's why cartoons like Dungeons & Dragons or Gargoyles become a standout immediately. Mm-hmm. And I was... 13 when Dungeons and Dragons hit the air and I was obsessed with the show and so was my 30 year old uncle. Sure. I, that's an interesting show to revisit. I have it on DVD and Isn't it's it... still really good. Yeah, I know, right? And the episode where they totally kick his ass when they go to the dragon's graveyard and they and their weapons become supercharged <laughs> and they totally they beat the bad guy. Oh, Venger. They beat Venger, Venger and they beat him down to a pulp to the point where they're like, we can destroy you. And then they're like, if we do that, we're no better than you. Uh-huh. And they let him go. It's totally epic. It's it, awesome. It, it teaches you that their morality is their weakness. You have to defeat <laughs> that morality. <laughs> you know, because when I was growing up, it's like we had, you know, you had like, uh, Inspector Gadget and Hong Kong Fooey and you know so many shows that like you know I love them they're wonderful but it's all these comedy adventure shows and when Batman came along I mean you know it had, it had been a long time since like the original Johnny Quest or and even, even that had freaking Bandit you know even, even that was a little tongue in cheek with Super Friends which the Super Friends which were terrible and yet it was pure action adventure it was pure action adventure, but you had, you know, first Wendy Marvin and Wonder Dog, and then later you had the Wonder Twins and Gleek. I mean, they always Yeah, had... but it was ne- it was never played for comedy. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you haven't watched those in a while. My point was, it wasn't like Inspector Gadget. Of, no. Oh, look, I'm, I'm was, supposed to be the expert, no, but it, I'm not. It was yeah. more serious than that, but, you know, clearly, aside from just the quality of the writing and the... Um, the animation, you know, the Batman series from 92, took it to another level. Now, part of that was that they were being championed by uh, a producer, Gene McCready? McCurdy? Uh, I think some, it was McCurdy. You know, basically there was this, there was like this golden age yeah. of WB Saturday morning animation that started building with like Tiny Toons and Animaniacs. Yeah. And, oh, I loved and, Animaniacs. And, you know, and so like it wasn't just limited to, to superhero drama like Batman. It was obviously the, the humor shows too where, you know, you had standards and practices is kind of cyclical where it'll they'll get a little more lenient and then they'll get a little more conservative. And, you know, they were going through a lenient phase of what they could get away with and you had a producer at Warner Brothers... And, you know, the WB that was willing to champion shows that weren't just pablum. Yeah. And and that went a long way. And, you know, over time, you build a brand. I mean, that's, that's the thing with Disney. is like Disney is a strong enough brand that you don't have to have a specific label to put on it. You don't have to have the paragraph-long uh, mission statement. You know, you just like, you know, oh, it's a Disney film from the 70s? I know what that is. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's a Disney animated musical. Yeah. Of course it's going to be fun But, you know, it's a long slog, and it's a, like a lot of projects. And so, I mean, you know, I was just saying earlier, you know, we were talking about the Marvel Studios stuff. You can do Guardians of the Galaxy now, where that's a bunch of comic book characters that even, like, among comics fans, those guys are obscure. Does not have any really big-name stars in the film. I mean, like, yeah, a few recognizable actors for those of us that are movie buffs, but not name-above-the-title movie star yeah. actors. And yet, I think it's going to do really well because at this point, Marvel Studios is a proven brand and the trailers look great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that we've talked about that on the pad, podcast. Of, yeah. I am impressed with Marvel that they, they've been like knocking it out of the park consistently and getting better and better. And then they're like, you know what? We just knocked it out of the park with Captain America, the Winter Soldier. It was epic. It was political. And the next film that we're going to do... Guardians of the Galaxy. I know nothing Here about this property. Here is a property. raccoon with a machine gun. I know nothing about this property. It's radically different in tone. And my honest-to-God thought was, well, it's Marvel, so it's probably going to be good. Yeah. And that's the thing. Part of the brand that they've built is is the quality of their films. Mm-hmm. But part of it is that family-friendly thing of they're all over the map in terms of tone and style going from character to character. But you know it's going to fit in this envelope of it's going to be smart, it's going to be dramatic, it's going to be funny, it's not going to take itself too seriously. And, you know, a really broad range of people are going to be able to enjoy it. What, what if this doesn't stop? What if this is like Disney, where Disney is now... I mean, yeah, they've got clunkers, but for the most part, a Disney film comes out, and everybody knows that a Disney film is coming out, and they're mm-hmm. like, well, well, okay, I'll make, well, I'll make time to go see it. The more recent, it's, a, it's another Pixar. I was going to say, the more recent example, which is also part of Disney now, like yeah. Marvel Studios, is Pixar. Yeah. Where they had that track record that was so strong. And I think most of us like some Pixar films better than others. Mm-hmm. But I think that has more to do with whether the subject matter connected yeah, with us than really personal. the quality of the film. The film is great. It's just personally, I, I, I like this one better. I, you know, there are people that love cars to pieces. Anthropomorphic cars have never connected with me at all. <laughs> I have grown quite fond of that film upon repeated viewings. Which is fun. I had no love for it initially. But obviously, The Incredibles is going to connect more with me than Ratatouille. I think yeah. Ratatouille is a marvelous film. But, you know, I, I get giddy over The Incredibles. Well, because, yeah. Because it's The Incredibles, and we're getting the sequel. That's a whole separate podcast. And and Finding Nemo is mine, because yeah. I worked in a fish store for yes. five years. Yes. yes, listeners, I worked in a fish store. It, 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 <laughs> it, is it a fishy fish? Fishy, 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 fishy fish. fish. That went wherever I did go. You know, it's great when you have an urge to say something, and I'm like, eh, I can just get her to say it. <laughs> Um, I mean, the thing I was gonna, gonna, you know, when I started bringing up the Parliament thing again before is like, you know, we, we were we were like playing the game. It's like, are, are there any terms you can use? Is there any way that you can clearly brand something as all ages that doesn't have the potential mistaken connotation of for kids, kid, kiddie stuff? You know, for kids. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's the problem is you say family, yeah. oh kids. Yeah. You say kid friendly, oh kids. There's so much wrong with our culture right now with how we treat our children and the ways that we do not let them have agency and responsibility 
And then they grow up to be irresponsible fuckwads and we're surprised. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's another aspect of the same thing that hits adult entertainment, which is it's the, it's the catering to the lowest common denominator. You know, we assume that kids are only as intelligent as the dumbest kid we've ever met. <laughs> you know, mm, we, we, oh we so God, easily forget, but we so easily forget how many kids are smart and inquisitive and creative and want to be challenged plus the whole thing of you know if you're if you're 10 you don't want the thing that says it's for 10 year olds you want the thing that says it's for 15 year olds yeah if you're 15 you want the adult stuff yeah so you know even with the intended target audience when they label stuff as being for kids it's like the kiss of death for wanting them to be interested in it well I was teaching seventh graders and they were going to see films that had me a little Mm -hmm. twitchy. Like, not in terms of, oh, you're seeing that, but me as an adult going, I don't know how I feel about watching well, that. Well, I think, I, I think part of that is I, I think kids want to be challenged. You know, they want to be taken seriously. They want to be considered as adults. But, yeah. You know, they, they want to rise. I, I think if you give them that material, they will rise to it. Well, you know, we, we have a culture that routinely talks down to kids and kids notice. Yeah. So when they see something that says it's age appropriate for them, I think they quickly learn, oh, I'm going to be insulted by this. Well, yeah. And and a lot of times it's absolutely true because, you know, when things do get marketed to them, it's banal or banal or however you say it. I like banal. Banal. I'm drunk and I can't remember how to pronounce banal. Well, when I... I was, I was reading... The it's hundred... banal! It's totally banal! It's like anal with a B. Mm-hmm. When I... There are attractive features to both pronunciations. I, uh, I, I wouldn't want to do um, anal with a B for a number of reasons. <laughs> you really went there. I, uh, I am the one that hasn't been drinking. I have no excuse. When I was teaching... I read The Hunger Games to my students because I was a strong proponent of having reading time regularly as well as read aloud time because everybody loves to be read aloud to. I'm sorry. They do. And if you're like... Well, Especially kids, by Morgan Freeman. I know, but I'm not Morgan Freeman. No. So I made up for it by picking a really awesome book. There you go. Now, what was great when I... Because I did it my first year of teaching and The Hunger Games had just been published was just starting to break but not every kid in the world had read it yet so as i started reading it right at the beginning of the school year and we were making our way through those first couple of chapters and they're talking about the reaping but we don't know what it is yet Mm -hmm. and these kids were they were literally on the edge of their seat i could see them like they were leaning forward and like and when we got to the big reveal i think it's like at the end of chapter like three Uh where you find out that the reaping is these kids will be taken away and they have to fight to the death. And it was pure luck. A little bit of pure luck, a little bit of me going, I think this will time out right, that I got to that part with like three minutes left in class. And I read it, and that was the end of the chapter, and I stopped, and the kids were all like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, well, this is what it just, what does that mean? And they're like, they have to kill each other? Yes. Starting at 13. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So, like, me. Me. I'd have to, like, go into an arena 
and go kill people or get killed. Yeah. What? <laughs> and it was so delightful. And yet so many people would be like, this, why would you read a child a book about murder and death and stuff? And it's like, well, look at them. They're thoroughly engaged and well, interested. I mean, yeah. kids kids love the stuff of childhood, but they also know they are going to grow up. They are going to become adults. They are going to someday deal with adult issues. And when you're a kid, whether it's scary to you or not, it's this tantalizing mystery. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that stuff is. I wonder what it's like. And, and yeah, the idea of having entertainment that presents danger and, and presents choices that are of higher stakes than the choices you're presented with in childhood, that's thrilling. I read The Dark is Rising when I was nine or ten, and that's totally young adult literature. But the concept of the entire world rests on the choices of an 11-year-old boy. Mm. What if that were me? Oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would be so cool. <laughs> and it, literature, they do this, and it gets awards. The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. won the fucking Newbery, and it's about a boy who is being, who is targeted by a serial killer. <laughs> and he goes to live in a graveyard with ghosts. And it's dark and it's unapologetic about life and death. And the family is murdered right at the beginning. His whole family is murdered right at the beginning of the book. Mm. And it's not gratuitous and graphic, but it's pretty obvious what's going on there. Mm -hmm. It is not tiptoed around. And it won the fucking Newbery. So in literature, we can accept it. What's our problem with every other medium. I'm not a, I'm not huge into the comics industry and I'm just boggled by that. Why wouldn't you nurture? Well, why wouldn't you, oh, let's catch them when they're five and we'll have them for life. Oh, good well, God, yeah. Con, I mean, that's con, the way, that's what wait, Disney is doing with the fucking princesses. Well, and that's how the comics industry used well, to be. Com- but comics have, for, for decades, had such a tortured relationship between the, the their content and the its appropriateness for their not just their audience their perceived audience. I mean, all, oh, all or the, are we going to get into the comics code? Well, all let's the, get into all the, the code. all the stuff of the comics code oh. and Frederick Wortham in the fifties and all that stuff. Uh. I mean, without going too far down the rabbit hole into the details of that, just just understanding that like comics went through that phase and then slowly were able to reintroduce more adult themes and subject matter back in after being taken to a ridiculous extreme of not only no violence for sexual content, but, you know, you may not portray the police as anything other than helpful and perfect and they always get their man and there's no corruption and bad guys are always punished and there's no lasting damage from anything that the bad guys do at the end of the story and just these ridiculous restrictions you know like good luck telling a serious drama oh yeah in that envelope and and there there were even certain terms that were banned from titles of books there were certain words you could not use in the title sure for those of you who are not familiar with the comics code it is you know we can just boil it down to there were some when EC Comics came out in the was it late fifties early sixties? 
the the fifties. The fifties. The fifties. Uh, EC Comics, which found a niche in horror comics, um, the rest of the comics industry became came under fire for having really grisly and uh, adult themes in their. And and so the, the most of the comics industry banded together and basically founded their own censorship code, and tailored it partly to drive EC Comics out of business. Well, the the entire comics industry was under attack because it wasn't just the horror mm-hmm. comics. It was. I mean, this is where all the accusations of there being a homosexual aspect to the Batman Robin relationship yeah. and all that Wait, all when that did garbage. Did the Haze Code pop up? Haze Code was uh, early '30s. Yeah, so this came along this significantly was, after. Yeah. but this was this was the comics industry taking their turn as the scapegoat for all the ills of society. I mean, it's a cyclical thing that you know. Different different entertainment, you know, role playing games got it. Uh, you know, violent computer games have had it. You know, it's like yeah. you know, people keep coming along. It's like, and not that there aren't maybe some problems, but it's always exaggerated way beyond what's reasonable. As like everything's bad because of this. Basically, to defend itself from all the public pressure it was getting, because there were like Senate committee hearings happening, it escalated yeah. to that point. The comics industry collectively took the preemptive measure of forming this organization that was going to adhere to craft and then adhere to this comics code of what was acceptable. And in the course of crafting that, they saw the opportunity to basically target EC Comics, who at that point did almost nothing but horror and specific, they crafted some of the language to really specifically target their titles, which pretty much just it took out a competitor. Because everybody else could like dial back the adult content in their material mm-hmm. and drop a couple titles here and there and survive. EC, it, you know, a lot of a lot of the words that you weren't allowed to use in the in in the title of a book were like their books. Those were the titles of their comics. Yeah. So like, it, just, it decimated everything and the only thing that survived is they had this one humor title that they were able to get around the comics code by changing its format to a magazine so it wasn't a comic book anymore and that book was called mad (laughs) (laughs) the thing about that is so if you understand that there was a long road back from that place to where in the 70s you know, there, there were a number of progressive relaxations of the comics code. It would get revised to be a little less strict. So in the 70s, they were able to finally start doing horror comics again. Now, it wasn't like graphic or gory like it had been in the 50s, but like you could actually have a vampire character in your story. You know, it was that kind of a thing. Oh. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're coming back from that, but like that, you know, all of that did nothing but reinforce the perception that got them in trouble in the first place, which is that comics are for kids. Therefore, anything that you wouldn't feel comfortable having a little kid read shouldn't even be in the the medium of comics. You know, because it it just, it was assumed. You know, it didn't matter if it said all ages and the store had it on the top shelf in a plastic wrapper. It's like, well, a kid could get their hands on that. So, but, but because it was comics, that's the kind of thinking they were always up against. So, it's, so, so it's the same problem we have, the same perception problem we have with animation. And precisely, animation is a cart. It's a cartoon. 
That yeah. must mean it's for kids. Well, but but when, now when you get a reaction. To, but, and Fritz the Cat is. Yeah. And Renaissance. Renaissance Have you seen Renaissance? I Renaissance love. is pretty great. But yeah, now I, I think it's flipped to a degree because I think people have gotten so sensitive to the idea that this is all kids stuff that now there's a, a temptation to tack adult content onto superhero material so it feels less like kids stuff. Well, yeah. And again, that's a huge overgeneralization. There's plenty of other reasons to do. I want to, to legitimize do. my interest in this, even though I'm a grown person. At, see, these are adult stories. It's okay. Except a truly epic story is all ages. Yeah. Yeah. A truly epic story. Like, let's go back to the classic Spider-Man story, like where with the whole Gwen Stacy thing. Yeah. Right? An eight-year-old's going to read that and be just as heartbroken and engaged and fascinated as an, as an adult. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to soft pedal it to the eight-year-old and you don't need you don't need to make it grittier for the adult. If you just tell human stories, human stories resonate. My rule of thumb, if I were put in charge of the comics industry, which isn't going to happen, <laughs> um, to me, any character popular enough to support multiple titles, so like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, the X-Men... Why, are, why don't Any you of have those a characters, kids, a middle... At least one of those books should be all ages friendly and match the version of the character that exists in the in the popular public consciousness. In the movies. So, well, I mean, the example being, like, you know, they just did a thing a couple years ago in Batman comics where they killed off Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson actually assumed the mantle of Batman for a while. And through a long, it can only happen in comics kind of storyline... Bruce Wayne eventually returned from the dead and became Batman again. Zombie. And that's all fine. But there should have been one book during all that where you pick it up and Batman is Bruce Wayne. And he has Robin by his side. And together they fight a rogues gallery supervillain every month. So I think we can all agree that we need to start treating kids as if they know that the world is a real place. Yes, mm-hmm. and and we need to find, and we didn't really crack this nut tonight, uh, find a better way of identifying stuff that is intended to be uh, appropriate and friendly to all ages without it coming across as kid stuff. For kids, but the adults will enjoy it too. Yeah. That's my favorite, right? That disclaimer. Yeah. For kids, but the adults will enjoy it too. It's for oh, the yeah. eight-year-old and everybody. Well, I, I remember a quote from uh, Terry Gilliam from when he was making Time Bandits. He wanted it to be, he wanted the movie to be smart enough for kids and entertaining enough for adults. Oh, yes. that's a good quote. Yeah. Yeah. So let us read some listener yes, questions yes we we have listener questions you, you should ask the the question and mm. I, I will i will answer as our you'll listener. do our interpretive reading yes okay yes, yes, yes so dear listener who are you william brian donahue oh, it's one of our brian's it's a brian Yay. Yay. brian's all right hey yeah listener what do you do i inhabit the internet wait wait so he's He's like um, one of those crazy dystopian lawnmower men or something? Yeah, well, he kind of is. Okay. All right. I went to Max Headroom, but okay. I I will continue reading. Uh, I inhabit the internet, give people interesting drinks. 
This is also true. Yeah, he really does. He's very good with drinks. Um, and I don't watch enough movies. I also make supermarket ads for money. Filthy, filthy money. You could share some of that filthy money with me. It sounds delightfully <laughs> well, filthy. Well, he'll, he'll definitely share drinks with you. Okay, well, if that's how you want to share your money with me is through alcohol, we know I'm uh, good yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah, we're all good with that. So, William Brian Donahue, what is in your personal pleasure dome? All for the dialing for dollars movies I saw as a kid. <laughs> what? Oh. Dialing for dollars. Oh my god, I've never seen those. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, you found something I haven't seen. Uh, the experience of watching Star Wars for the first time in 1977 in a mostly empty theater with my dad. And though I'll be mocked for it, the experience of seeing Star Trek IV in the State Theater in Ithaca, New York with an audience of Cornell students, professors, and sci-fi fans. Why would you be mocked? No! <laughs> Star Trek IV was super good time! And I th- I, I, as I've said before, the three best Star Trek movies are Wrath of Khan, The Voyage Home, and Galaxy Quest. Yes. <laughs> Also, I have a special fondness for four because I made out with a really attractive young man throughout most of it. Oh, me too. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was very tall. I'm very short. Tall men held a real real fascination with me for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so it, as revealed during our Howard Keel episode. It, it's true. They, they're like a jungle gym. <laughs> I can't help it. Just have them stand on a box. Seriously, it's like, you're so tall. <laughs> formative, formative things. You, with you just family. needed to learn to date in a trench. <laughs> if you could just come down. Actually, that young man, I have a memory of... I stood on a staircase to be actual kissing height with him. I went mm. up like two or three stairs. He wow. was Like I said, he was very tall. I, and was, you are not. And I am not. And I was like 16 or yo. I was, I was a teen. It was totally one of those sorts of, we're going to the movies where I did actually watch enough of the film to catch the plot, but I was a little distracted. Anyway, all right. That's about me, not you, William Brian Donahue. So I apologize. So William <laughs> Brian Donahue, do you William have William Brian Danger Donahue? <laughs> yes. Do you have a Esquire. recommendation for our communal pleasure dome? I can't imagine there's anything I've seen that the two of you haven't, except for perhaps the Darling for Dollars movies. <clears throat> Apparently, uh, maybe some Shaw Brothers films, mm. Stanley Tucci films, or mm, yes, Stanley I Tucci. love Stanley Tucci so much. Or maybe film versions of Shakespeare plays. And I mean the overtly Shakespearean movies, not just the plot swipes. Well, yeah. That's good. So you get like Joss Whedon's, uh, for the most recent, Much Ado About Nothing, which has so much that is delightful about it. Of course you've got Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. But then you go way back to Olivier's, like, Othello. Oh, yeah. And his Henry, the whatever number it was. Oh, my goodness. And you get into Ian McKellen's Richard III, which I think is on Netflix. Yes, it is. Or at least it was for a while. It's so good. Oh, and Patrick Stewart's Macbeth was on Netflix for a while, too. It might still be on there. I haven't checked recently. I have a copy of Jeremy Brett's Macbeth somewhere. Oh, I'd be interested in that. Because we need to bring that up. Macbeth and Othello are my two favorite Shakespearean tragedies because Mm, they're both very brief. Yes. I like. Macbeth, I think, is the actual shortest of his tragedies. And I like Macbeth because of the dark bloodiness of it all. But I love Othello for the fucked up of Iago. 
right? <laughs> so, oh, bravo, bravo. Yeah, very, very good I'm idea. We're going to write those right, down. Okay. 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 It's Stanley Tucci and Shakespeare. <gasps> Stanley Tucci should do Shakespeare. You know that David Tennant and Catherine Tate have done Shakespeare together on Yes, it was Hamlet, right? It was much ado about nothing. <gasps> oh. I still need to see it so bad. Oh, my God. <laughs> This is a thing that has been needing to happen for years. I just, I just want them to be in the middle of a Shakespearean scene and have her be like, wasn't that just wizard? <laughs> Actually, I'd love for her to be doing Benedict. She's doing Beatrice, he's doing Benedict. And somebody comes out and is like, are you two together? And she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> just like a Doctor Who. Yay! All right, so this has been another episode of Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with our special guest, DC Comics artist Christopher Jones, and of course my co-host Melissa Kirscher. Bye. I'm, I'm Wendy Bowlesby, and I've been drinking a lot of red wine. Thank Same. you. Yay. Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown, and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at XanaduCinema.com, follow us on Twitter at XanaduCinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Let's drink more of Italy.